Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. So good to see everybody today. As you're settling into your seats, uh, the ushers are going to receive the offering, so they're going to come forward and take that. And while they do that, I want to talk about a couple of things before I dive into the message today. Um, the, the first one is this. I just, um, you know, this week I was sitting in my office and I was looking out the window and I just had this overwhelming sense of um, just compassion for the people of Afghanistan. And I, I just found myself just wrestling. I thought, you know, I hear everybody talking about their opinions about what went wrong in Afghanistan or who should have done what or all these different things. And I just felt like I didn't hear anybody talking about what we're doing about the thousands and thousands of people that are being uprooted from their lives and landing on our shores and going to have to figure out life in a new culture that they've never seen or never known. And I was just, my heart was just breaking for that. I just was breaking for them. And then I thought, even more so, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if when, when refugees land in our country from Afghanistan, if the people that meet them and greet them and welcome them and care for them are people like us. Amen? So, um, so our team this week, they, they just kind of went on high alert and they just started calling different organizations. We've got amazing organizations in our city that work with refugees, but they contacted several of them. Uh, and so on our website right now, there's a new landing page there that gives you opportunities to serve, very practical ways that you can serve these refugees. In fact, we announced this on Thursday night. I already talked to somebody this morning who's already got a family that they've sort of adopted, they're caring for. Um, there's also ways to pray very specifically for them, not only praying for them, but also um, like the, the person I was talking to this morning, she said they're heartbroken because they left family behind in this struggle. And can you imagine being ripped from your family and then dealing with the reality that they're there struggling with this? Um, so there's ways to pray for them. There's also ways to give. There's some drop-down menus that are there. Um, but I just, I want to make that known to you because I think if you're like me and I think you are, um, in moments like this, you say, we got to do something. The church has to step into this. And this is the space God created us for, was to meet people like this. And I hope 20 years from now, there's thousands of people that say, my journey of faith began when I hit the shores of America and these Christians met me and showed me what it was like to love like Jesus. So that's my prayer for that. That's the first thing I want to say. Sound good? All right. I got I to gotta, I gotta get a sounds good somewhere, right? The second thing, as many of you know, um, this week is our Reveal Sunday for Chosen. And when you walked in today, you probably saw some, um, some envelopes out in the commons and the lobby out there. And uh, what happened here last week was just so incredibly amazing and beautiful. There were over 250 kids just last Sunday um, that had the opportunity to choose families here at B4. And uh, it was just an amazing thing. It was moving beyond belief to see pictures. In fact, um, there's going to be some pictures here behind me. Uh, one of the coolest things was when we got some of these pictures this week and being able to see see your faces in Rwanda being chosen by a kid uh, was just absolutely beautiful and overwhelming. And uh, in fact, uh, it, it's just truly one of those great things that we get to be a part of. Um, so, so not only was last weekend a major highlight, but I think also just knowing that there's a future that it's different. There's a viable future for children. Their lives are dramatically changed because of this. And, uh, and, and you have brought hope to parents and you have brought hope to families through what you've done. So um, so this morning after the service, if you haven't gotten your packet yet, I encourage you to stop by out there and go see the kid that chose you. And uh, this coming a couple of weeks, you're going to get a letter from them that they're going to send to you talking about why they chose you. And that's just a, another really beautiful part of that. And then if you didn't participate, we left the photo booth up and we've left the window of opportunity open. So if you'd like to be chosen, I know several people after the last service went out and they got their pictures taken. So I encourage you stop by out there and we would love for you to join us in this. If you feel left out, uh, we want you to feel opted in. So uh, you can do that as you leave today. So with that, 
Um, we're going to continue this morning in our series called A People in a Place in the book of Corinthians. And uh, before, I, before I, I get into the text, let me just say this. When I come to a text or when I come to the sermon every single week, I come to it with a, a basic assumption. And my basic assumption is that if you're here, if, if you're in the room or you're watching online, if you've made the decision to, to get dressed and get here or turn on your computer or your TV, I make the assumption that if you're here, there's a desire in you to grow. Uh, there's a desire in you to maybe have your mind changed about some things. There's a desire in you to see some things maybe you haven't seen before. And the reason I come with that assumption is that Jesus' primary invitation to his disciples was to follow him, right? So if you follow somebody, it means that that person's going to take you to a place that you're not presently, right? That person's going to lead you to a place. That person's going to show you things. There's going to be experiences. There's going to be observations. There's going to be new learning that you have in your life if you choose to follow somebody. And so my assumption is, if we're following Jesus, if you come into this space, you come here with a sense of like, I'd like to grow. I'd like to change a little bit. You say, well, why are you saying that this morning? Well, um, did you ever hear your parents say, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me? Anyone ever say that to their kids? Don't ever say that to your kids. It hurts them more than it hurts you. But um, today's passage in Corinthians is painfully relevant. Uh, it is relevant because it's going to address something that we are dealing with in our culture right now. Um, and it's painful. I think you're going to see this. It's painful because it deals with disagreements. Uh, how, it has to do with liberty and it has to do with love. We're going to use the words stronger and weaker to describe ourselves, and it's written to confront attitudes, and not attitudes that just existed a couple thousand years ago. We're talking about attitudes that exist right now in this moment and very likely in this room. And so I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to start walking through it and unpack this for ourselves. So if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're also going to be looking at Romans chapter 15 as well in this. Um, so 1 Corinthians 8, we'll start there, and then Romans 15. It says this in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled." Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And now Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So so we've been talking about how we embody the kingdom of Jesus personally and publicly. What does it look like for us to allow the principles, the realities of Jesus' kingdom to reshape our own personal values, but then also how does it reshape the way that you and I live in public? How do we live our faith out in the community where God has planted us? That's what this series has been about so far. And certainly when we begin to talk about this and we begin to discuss this, we realize it's going to say something about how we get along with other people, right? You can't live the kingdom out without figuring out how you're going to live with other people, specifically people that we might disagree with. So I want to take a quick poll this morning, so um, get ready to raise your hand if this is you. If you have, by chance, had a disagreement with somebody in the past 18 months, raise your hand. All right, good. You've disagreed with someone. If you didn't raise your hand, you are in a coma right now, I think. You've been hibernating. We need to, like, like wake the person next to you if they didn't raise their hand. How, the question is this. How can people whose beliefs and practices offend each other live together? How does that actually happen? How do you and I live among people that we disagree with seriously, that we, that we find offensive? Um, th- this brings us, when, when you have this conversation, this brings us to a topic that gets discussed at length in our culture today because this is a hot issue in our culture. This is a significant conversation that needs to happen because we're not getting along. I don't know if you've noticed this. We're not getting along, Right? And in our culture right now, when we start talking about this, we end up landing on the subject of tolerance. And that's a buzzword in our culture. The world says the answer to this question is to be just tolerant of one another, right? But what Paul is presenting to us in Romans and in 1 Corinthians is way beyond tolerance. It's way beyond tolerance. So let me just explain the text here. Um, There's a conflict happening both in Corinth and in Rome. They're a little bit different. In Rome, there's a group of Christians who have sort of stumbled upon the Jewish dietary laws, and they're now saying, if you really want to be a good Christian, there's all this other stuff that you need to be doing. And so there's this segment of Christians saying, no, there's more rules, there's more things. Like, to to be a really good Christian, you should be doing all of this stuff. And so they're adhering to these rules and regulations, but in the process, they're also beginning to condemn people that aren't doing those things. And they're separating themselves, not just from other Christians, but they're also separating themselves from the world that doesn't follow those things. And so they're retreating away from things. In Corinth, it's a very similar but slightly different issue. Remember that in the city of Corinth, this is a city that was dedicated to the worship of all sorts of gods and goddesses. There's all sorts of idolatry. And in those temples, it was common for them to to pray or to dedicate meals to these foreign gods, these idols. And then there would be feasting. In fact, a lot of like the public restaurant, as you would think of it in our culture, they were in these temples where the meat had been blessed by these various idols. And so there were Christians that said, wait a second, we used to live in that world. We don't want to be a part of that world. We shouldn't have anything to do with that meat. And then there were some Christians that were saying, do you not realize those gods don't exist? So why does it matter if they pray to them? The steak looks good, so eat the steak. That's basically what's going on. So we have these two conflicts, and both of them are around liberty. Are we free to do these things? Or are we not free to do these things? It's, 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 a, it's a question of will you do this or not do this. That's what's coming up. And in each of these situations, Paul identifies two different groups of people. He identifies some people as being strong and some people as being weak. I want to talk about these for a moment. Who are these? What are these two groups like? So let's, let's start with the weaker person that he's talking about. 
If you take a look at 1 Corinthians verse 7, you, you have a really good understanding of what it means. And it's really different than what we typically think of. Verse 7 says, however, not all possess this knowledge. So there's a lack of knowledge. There's something missing in their understanding. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, when you and I hear the, the, the idea of a weak conscience in our culture today, what we typically think of is somebody who is, um, they have like shallow morality, right? They have no self-control, no self-regard, and they have very little regard for other people, right? No moral conscience means they just do things, they don't feel guilt, they don't feel shame. When we hear a weak conscience in our society, that's what we think. When Paul is using this word, he's actually talking about something that is completely the opposite. A weak conscience to Paul is something that's very different. For Paul, what he's saying is, you're not deeply oriented around the love and the grace of Jesus. Um, what he's saying is that, that the conscience is too weak to protect the person from feeling defiled. If I do these things, I feel, I feel guilt, I feel shame, I feel like God doesn't love me. And so this person, they're, they're, it's too weak to protect them from the, the feeling of being polluted. So when this person enters into gray areas, when they enter into areas that are, that are just not explicitly spelled out, or when they see things in the Old Testament, or they see these rules, they, they, they just get focused on the rules and the regulations. So a weak conscience, this person, they, they just, they don't understand the gospel deeply enough, and so they always feel like they're earning and, and trying to, get God's favor. That's what this person is doing, which means they're always worried about breaking the rules. They're always feeling insecure. They're condemned if they tread in these gray areas. So here's who the weak people are. They're the ones who need to evaluate everything, right? Is that good? Is that okay? Are we allowed to do this? How far can I go? How far should I go? What can I do? It's all of those kinds of questions, right? They hate the gray areas. They want to know what's the Christian thing to do. Oh, and by the way, what's the non-Christian thing to do? And they want to make sure we know what black and white is. There can be no gray, and everything has to be evaluated. So it's up and down, good and bad, uh, evil or good. Like, that's what they do. And there's no room for ambiguity. So on the other hand, we have the strong, and Paul actually identifies himself being among the strong. I don't know anybody that wouldn't, right? If you're writing a letter about weak and strong people, like, and us, the strong people, right? He identifies with the strong in Romans 15 and in 1 Corinthians 8. And listen to what he says in verse 1 of Romans. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And then more in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we, speaking of the strong, know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So what's he saying? We know, right? The strong aren't superstitious like the people in Corinth, and they aren't moralistic like the people in Rome. These are broad-minded people, right? These are, these are people that are less temperamental. They're more flexible. They're okay with ambiguity. They're comfortable in the gray areas, and everything doesn't have to be evaluated. And, and here's what's interesting and challenging about this. Both in Romans 15 and in 1 Corinthians 8, the critique is not of the weak. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody wants to be called weak, right? But he's not writing this to say, you weak people, you need, to, you need to level up. You need to get strong like your stronger brothers. No, his reason for writing is to confront the strong. They're not bearing with the weak. They aren't being patient with them. They're not accepting them. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, it's obvious that moralistic people, religious, religiously driven people or weak people, they're intolerant. However, there is another way that broad-minded, strong people can also be intolerant, right? They're intolerant of intolerant people, right? 
They're judgmental of judgmental people. They're self-righteous about self-righteous people, right? So neither side is accepting one another. Neither side is relating to one another. Neither side is really respecting each other. They actually disdain one another. So on one hand, we have these moralistic people who are intolerant, and on the other hand, you have these broad-minded people who say, oh no, we accept everybody. We accept everybody. We're not like you, right? And the issue that, that is being emerged before us is this issue of inclusion and exclusion, which is a hot topic in our culture today. And let's talk about, let's talk about inclusion and exclusion. Today, inclusion is good, right? Everyone needs to be included. We need to include everybody. Exclusion is the problem, right? You cannot exclude anyone for who they are, what they believe, or what they do. Exclusion is bad, right? But there are three ways to exclude, and this is really important. The first way is expulsion, right? You just see somebody, you go, I just disdain you, so just get away from me. I'm just going to, you're expelled from my presence, right? The second way is subjugation. Okay, if we have to do life together, then we're going to play by my rules, and that way, I have the power. So yes, I have disdain for you, and yes, we can get along, but as long as I'm in control, then we can coexist in this place together. So we all recognize both of those are forms of exclusion, and, and that's how the weak exclude, right? Either I have to be in power, or I just simply reject you. So, so they spread rumors, they, they spread gossip, they critique every move, every word, they're constantly evaluating, then they just throw you out because, yep, you proved yourself to be exactly what I thought you were. That's what they do. But there's a third way to exclude. Not expulsion, not subjugation, but this thing called assimilation. In assimilation, you say this, I would love to have a relationship with you, but you're going to have to be just like me. And don't you want to be like me? <laughs> right? You see, assimilation is a form of exclusion. And here's, here's how it works. In, in our modern world, we have traditional people who say, we have the truth, and you don't, so get out, right? But in our modern world, we also have tolerant people who say, wait a second, nobody has the truth. Who are you to tell me to get out? In fact, maybe you should get out because you think you have something that doesn't exist, right? Nobody has the truth. In fact, tolerance is the moral absolute that there is no moral absolute. So it says, look, if, if, if we're all going to get along, if everyone, if we're going to do this together, then everyone needs to admit that everything is relative and that truth is either religiously or personally contrived and it has no bearing on what is good or bad or right or wrong and no one has the right to tell anyone that they have truth or they, they don't have truth. So tolerance says, as long as we are relativists, we can get along. But what does that mean? Well, traditional intolerance says you have to adhere to my view of truth or you're out. It's a basic old school power play. But modern tolerance says basically the same thing. You can be a member of our society. You can be a member of this community if you agree to being as relativistic as we are. So we welcome everyone from everywhere. But if you think you have the truth, you're gone. So it looks like inclusion at the beginning but it's another form of exclusion in the end. Are you with me on this? So it turns out that both the strong and the weak practice their own forms of exclusion. The weak says, I have the truth, I have morals, and so I'm superior to you. And the strong says, no, no, I don't make moral observations. I don't judge you, and so therefore I'm better than you are. But Paul says, I'm calling you to something completely different. He's calling us to something that is far beyond our modern understanding of tolerance or intolerance. Let's look at it again. Verse 7 of Romans 15, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
So welcome one another. That word welcome is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 14, the chapter before this, and listen to what he says there. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He's pushing us well past this modern understanding of tolerance, and he paints a picture for us. He says, welcome, and don't judge them. Welcome, and don't quarrel over opinions. Um, this word welcome that he uses is a loaded word, and it means to receive. It means, it means to accept. It's like inviting somebody into your home, which is very different than tolerating somebody into your home, right? When you invite somebody into your home, you give them the tour, right? You show them where the bathroom is. You say, here's the fridge. If you need anything, get it, or I can get you. You, know, you welcome somebody into your home. You ever felt like you've been tolerated in someone's home before? Don't answer that question. You know what I mean, though, right? You welcome somebody. Come to my house. When was the last time you invited somebody over to your house? Said, hey, let's barbecue. But first, can I get your stance on the resettlement of Afghanistan immigrants? Like, would you let me know where you stand there first? When, when was the last time you invited somebody over and said, oh, hey, I, I'd love to have you over, but what's your stance on vaccination? Can I see your voting record for the past eight years? Your theology, are you pre-mill, post-trib? Like, do you ask them? No, you just invite them over, right? You invite them over. When you're welcoming somebody into your home, you're putting their humanity first and their opinion second. It's their humanity. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is fascinating. It's the Greek word proslambano. Proslambano is this word welcome. And I know it looks like a really hot pepper that you've never heard of, but it's not. Um, it actually means... It means to pull towards you and alongside, not to pull towards you and face somebody so that you can argue. Literally, it's the picture of extending a hand to somebody and pulling them. Imagine if you were climbing a hill and you were a few paces ahead of someone and you reached down and you extended a hand to raise that person up to your level. That's the word proslambano. Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, I want you to proslambano the people in your life. I want you to bring them here. Notice again what Paul says in, in verse 15, chapter 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Bear the weakness of the weak, which means joining them in the journey or inviting them to join you on your journey, which means you do everything you can do to understand them. You do everything you do to sympathize with them. You do everything to see their perspective and understand their story and how they got to where they've gotten to. And by the way, if you're going to do any of those things, you can't exclude them. You have to have a relationship with them. It requires this. The opposite of exclusion. Exclusion says, I refuse to change in order to have relationship with you because you're wrong. I'm not letting your immaturity, your lack of knowledge, or your lack of owning the truth, your hang-ups to change the way that I live, which is exactly what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 8. Look at these three verses, verse 4, verse 7, verse 10. If you look at them together, you just see it so clearly. He says at the beginning, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this this person, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
So, so what he's saying, the strong person is looking at the weak person saying, you've got all these hang-ups. There is no Apollo. There is no Athena. You're being superstitious. And I'm not going to let your silly hang-ups stop me from my liberty. I will eat what I want. I will drink what I want. I will do what I want when I want. That's what they're saying. Because they see and say, there's liberty in Christ, right? And Paul says, that person's conscience is being defiled. And remember, Paul defined weakness as not being oriented around the love and the grace of Jesus. It's too, too weak to keep the person from feeling guilt, from feeling shame, from feeling inferior, from feeling bad. And by the way, that doesn't change overnight. That doesn't change overnight. It doesn't happen in an instant. It takes time. We reflect on the gospel. We reflect on God's grace. We experience his love it takes teaching, it takes prayer, it takes worship, it takes all of these things for our hearts to be transformed by grace. So, so the person sees the brother and they say, well, I don't want to be narrow-minded. I don't want to be the prude. Maybe he's right. Maybe it doesn't matter. And so the person eats and he goes home and he feels horrible guilt and horrible shame. Question for you. Does God want us to feel guilt and shame? You guys are way better than the first service. They all kind of were like, well, maybe. <laughs> The answer is no. You can't look at the cross and, and think that God wants you to walk around with guilt and shame. God did everything to liberate you from guilt and shame, right? He liberates us from this. So, see, even if this is a trivial issue, God says it doesn't matter. I don't want people walking around in guilt and shame, and I don't want you quarreling over unnecessary things. He wants those who are strong to proslambano the weaker brother. Extend a hand. Bring them to you. Don't quarrel. Just walk with them. Create space in your life for someone who you think is seriously wrong. That's what he's saying. And how do we do that? Well, notice verse 7 again. He says, therefore, welcome proslambano one another as Christ has proslambanoed you for the glory of God. The world says this. The world says, well, just accept everybody's beliefs. Just don't talk about it. Just accept their beliefs. But that's not actually what Paul's saying here, is it? Paul doesn't say accept their beliefs. He says accept one another. Accept the person. There's a distinction between the person and what they believe. And he tells us to do it as Christ has welcomed you. Can we talk about this for just a moment? <laughs> By the way, there's a small nuance here that I just want to point out, and, and maybe I'm splitting hairs, but I actually think this really matters. People have gotten into the habit of saying things like, well, I accepted Jesus. Like when I was 27 years old, I accepted Jesus in my life. You know, we use that language. Can I just say something? You didn't accept Jesus. Jesus accepted you. You look at the Bible over and over, what we do is confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus accepted us. That's what we do. But Jesus is the one that did the accepting. He accepts you. And I think this is more significant than we realize. And there's two reasons for this. First, as long as you and I believe that we're the ones that accepted Jesus, we will never understand his grace fully. As long as I'm the one making the decision, as long as I think I'm the one in control, then I'm never going to know how outlandish and how beautiful his grace and love is. It's only when I realize he chose me that I realize how beautiful his grace is. And we acknowledge his work. We acknowledge that, and it changes us. So that's really important. But secondly, it has to do with what Paul's saying here. When you consider the state of mind you were in when Christ accepted you, it becomes a pathway 
that you walk as you welcome other people. And let me just show you how. Here's a question for you. When Jesus chose you, did he agree with everything you believed? (laughs) Your appreciation for certain things, your priorities, your affections, your passions, was it all in alignment? Jesus like, man, I'm choosing you because we are just on the same page. (laughs) Let me just poke the bear a little bit more. Maybe an even more honest question. Do you think that Jesus agrees with everything you believe right now? Right? I mean, does he, does he agree with our views on immigration? Does he view with our perspective on money? Does he agree with the way that we view sex? Does he, does, he, does he agree with the way we think about power and influence? And yet, he still accepts us. So Paul says, you want to know how to do this? You want to know how to proslambano your brother? You do it the same way that Jesus did that for you. You welcome him. You welcome him in. You know, every religious system says that we're justified, that we're either good or bad, we're either accepted or unaccepted based on our works. In fact, Buddha's last words, the Buddha's dying words were, strive without ceasing. It sounds exhausting, doesn't it? Christianity is the only one that says otherwise. That it's not your past, it's Christ's past. It's not your actions, it's Christ's actions. It's not your record, it's Christ's record. Why? Because he proslambanoed us. He pulls us into his story, and now that is how we are viewed. Jesus extends a hand and pulls us in, and we walk with him. And so where every other religion says you're either good or you're bad, you're either moral or you're a moral failure, you're either godly or you're godless, um, all of them say that. They never say you're both until you meet Jesus. (laughs) Right? When Jesus pulls you to himself, you are simultaneously right and wrong. You are simultaneously good and bad. You are simultaneously holy and sinful. That's the uniqueness of Jesus. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians and Romans 15, and this is so powerful, is that we are invited into living this towards one another. And this is what I believe. When you and I live this towards one another, we grow deeper in our understanding of how we live with Jesus and how he lives with us. When we practice this towards one another, our faith grows. Our understanding of grace expands. And that relationship is nurtured. And it, according to Paul, glorifies God. When I set my liberty aside for the sake of love, I better understand the love that Jesus has for me. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I realize this morning, maybe as you're listening, um, maybe some of you are exploring Christianity, you're exploring faith. Maybe you're watching online and somebody sent you the link and so you're watching it. Uh, Maybe you're in the room and you're just kind of on this journey and, and in like any given week, we're just kind of showing you a glimpse of who Jesus is. But if, you, if you're starting to understand, if you're starting to see who he is, and there's something stirring up in your heart, I just want to encourage you to say yes to being accepted by Jesus. Just take a step. Say, I, I want to trust this Jesus and begin to follow him. With that, I want to offer the benediction. So if you're willing to receive it, hold your hands and I'll offer this to you. May you be men and women who proslambano those around you, whether they agree with you 
or not in the same way that Jesus has welcomed you, whether you agree with him or not. In his name we pray, amen, amen, amen. We love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Be sure to stop by the photo booth if you want to be a part of Chosen and make sure you get your packet if you were here last week. We love you guys and we'll see you next Sunday. See you later.